Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. On today's episode, I shall be discussing another decade for you in what will be the penultimate episode of the Decade series that I've been doing here on Take 97, a film podcast. And we will be looking at another five films of my top five picks, really, of the decade. This time it is from the 2000s, so anything from the year 2000 up to the year 2009. I'm really getting into my element now as we're going through these and yeah there's some interesting films on this list which I am very excited for you guys to hear about and hear my experiences and thoughts about them as well. For now remember to keep following us on social media at Take97Podcast on Twitter and at Take underscore 97 podcast on Instagram. Now let's just get to it. The year 2000 is the millennium year Lots of things happened. There were rumours that think the world was going to end in the year 2000, the minute the clock struck midnight. And we did get some very interesting filmmaking out of this as well. Very interesting raw filmmaking, which would pave the way for cinema that was to come in the more recent days of the 2010s and into the current decade that we're in at the moment. I'm just going to start this off with the idea of the world ending. It segues nicely into this part of the podcast where I discuss my number five pick and specifically the reason why I mention this is because of this exact phrase for anyone who knows this film or loves this film as a cult classic and something that I've not long discovered really to be honest I know some people like it and some people don't like it. it's a bit of a divisive subject is it good is it bad is it just weird is it really crap uh, but I, I think it's quite an interesting premise considering it's made by a first-time filmmaker at the time. It's set in the 1980s as well, which, you know, considering the 1980s and the 70s were very revisionist in terms of looking back at periods of history, you don't think of a film set in the 1980s being made in the early 2000s. You think of that as more the 70s, 80s territory. But this one does just that. Directed by Richard Kelly, and it was released in 2001, is a cult classic starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Patrick Swayze, Jenna Malone, Drew Barrymore, just to name a few. And the film that I'm talking about at my number five spot is Donnie Darko. Now, like I said, Donnie Darko can divide people. I've chosen to put this on as a bit of a recent addition to my list. I was going to put something else on, but I did pleasantly enjoy this one. For anyone who doesn't know Donnie Darko, I won't spoil it too much for you, but when I mentioned the world ending, the film, if anyone knows even of the images, there's this man dressed as a rabbit this giant rabbit who's called frank who is jake gyllenhaal so jake gyllenhaal plays a character called donnie darko and he basically he's kind of he's not a total social outcast but he seems a bit out of it and bits estranged shall we say from real life in some respects and he gets these visions of this giant rabbit who he calls frank come to him and he tells him at one point because he goes sleepwalking onto this golf course and he sees this giant rabbit and the rabbit says to him the world will end in 28 days 6 hours 42 minutes and 12 seconds and that's the premise of the film that Donnie has been given this ultimatum of oh the the world's going to end how's it going to happen what am I going to do with it and he doesn't actually get given any like he's not there to save the world or anything like that he's just told this information the film kind of explores how he copes with this information and you know there's some supernatural sci-fi fantasy based things going on here as well I don't know it's off the wall that's why it's a cult classic because lots of people do love it but plenty of people do hate it 
I would say it's a very good first effort on Richard Kelly's part. I, for one, actually followed it quite well. I must admit, I when I read up on bits about it and watched some documentaries afterwards on it, I didn't actually get the the ending of it. I didn't actually realise that the first time watching it. I was just kind of blown away that what happened happened. I'm not going to spoil it too much for you guys because I think anyone who wants to watch it with a fresh pair of eyes, go and do it and see what you make of it and then read into it a bit afterwards or watch it again and see what you think it all means. Again, this is the other thing as well. There is a director's cut and a theatrical cut. I'd recommend you watch the theatrical cut first and then if you want to watch the director's cut, watch that second. But personally, I think you'll get just as much enjoyment out of the theatrical cut as you would the director's cut. Personally, the director's cut for me is not really needed. I don't think it needed to happen. The theatrical version, the original cut of the film, it says it all and it works as a film. But yeah, it's all to do with there's aspects of time, travel, kind of fantasy, foreknowledge, a burden of the world's going to end soon. And we follow Donnie in this like drug fueled haze of life. And the way the whole thing is shot, really, actually, for an independent film, really good because I've watched the documentary on like how this came to be. And interestingly, as an independent feature, a low budget feature, it was quite considerably shot in terms of the, you know, it was shot in a wide aspect ratio which was insisted upon by director Richard Kelly one of the highlights for this for me is the opening sequence where we track along and we find Donnie lying on the floor with his bike just lying on on this road and we get this lovely vista of this big massive open park area uh, and I've seen some really cool footage of where he went location scouting and one of the key things he said was there's not a closed or no entry sign in sight because he wanted to preserve that naturalness of the area and have that nice vista that didn't make it look like a tourist spot. So I think he achieved that. The sci-fi fantasy elements are in the rabbit itself. It's kind of there's a bit of a love story kind of attached to this really, as well as all the sci-fi fantasy end of the world stuff going on with Frank the Rabbit because we get the character Gretchen Ross played by Jenna Malone who enters the environment with Donnie. So Donnie is a school kid. A lot of it is set in a high school for the majority of the time. Gretchen Ross comes in and there's a scene where the teacher, played by Drew Barrymore, says, pick the boy that you think is the cutest and sit next to him. She chooses Donnie and that sort of blossoms from there. They become close. She kind of gives him something to live for in a way. And I think that's ultimately the thing with Donnie. He's an outsider to begin with. And if he was told, oh, the world's going to end and he didn't meet Gretchen, I don't think the emotional impact at the end of the film would hit you as hard as if he was just a loner that nobody cared about. And also, why would you stick around for the film if he was just a boring, self-isolated loner? Yes, he's got some friends. Yes, he interacts with his family, and he's got a bit of a wicked sense of humour here and there. But I do think that because of his emotional connection to Gretchen, I think you can relate more to Donnie in the sense that, you know, you have something to live for uh, and a reason to strive for living life, as it were, rather than not caring about the world ending. The other bits that I like from this film, it's all very well shot. The, the story itself is, you have to watch it a couple of times to sort of really receive it and understand what it's trying to say. So, But I would actually say in terms of filmmaking, it's very good. It's got some great bits where there's some slow motion used, the entrance of Donnie walking into the school out of the school bus. The angle is tilted, so we're actually looking at it sideways. And then we twist around and we follow him through. There's a series of steady cam shots in a mixture of slow motion and regular speed. And they're really, honest to God, good 
piece of camera work there on the behalf of the cinematographer in connection with Richard Kelly. That bit, the slow motion sequences in any of this are really good. I think the bit at the end of the film, which I won't spoil too much, but the end of the film where there's a Halloween-type costume party, and that is very very eerie and very creepy, especially because we do see Frank in that bit. But this brings me to my favourite moment, is the shots of Donnie and Gretchen on a date in the cinema. They go to a cinema and they see a double feature or so, Halloween Mania, and it's got Sam Raimi's Evil Dead on and we see them sat in there, and it's one of the iconic shots that you see them sat in the cinema, and all of a sudden Frank the rabbit is there, and we get to see this person beneath the mask, the big rabbit helmet of the costume, and we see his eye gouged out, and that is connected to something weird that Donnie did previously in a scene where he was talking to Frank through a mirror. And you know, this ultimately, it's a film that you could look back on it and see it's an analysis of mental health of a young person and looking into the details of strange psychosis and stuff like that as well as just being a bit of fun cult fantasy i think it's definitely worth a watch oh and the other thing as well it co-stars patrick swayze as a character called jim cunningham he's like this big rich health mental well-being guru who goes around you know he goes around on tours around the school around in the area that donnie lives in and he's like doing like self-help talks to children and communities and he gets arrested and so it's all down to donnie and um, frank knowing something and being the guy to put things into motion and be part of this master plan that's gonna occur by the end of the film which you'll see when you watch it patrick swayze would have never have pegged him to be in something like this but there you go it's an interesting piece of casting there and it's just very well shot and an interesting piece if you want to analyze it if you're into film studies analysis but moving on to my fourth pick in the 2000s so number four is a swashbuckling adventure from the creation of disney and um, many many other people along the way but based on the disneyland ride but this one in particular is probably one of my favorite fantasy adventure franchises ever and it's the pirates of the caribbean franchise that i'm discussing now but specifically i've picked the third film so pirates of the caribbean at world's end which was released in 2007 directed by gore verbinski i can't really go into too much detail without over explaining what is going on in the universe of pirates of the caribbean in the first two films but all you really need to know is that it follows the exploits of johnny depp's character captain jack sparrow as a rogue renegade you know proper true pirate against the system kind of guy and he we follow his exploits the first film it, it's how he gets his ship back the blessed black pearl and we get to see him be introduced to our main characters that we see for the at least the first three films that we have them in and a little bit of the fifth one but orlando bloom stars as will turner who's a bit clean cut but then he slowly becomes more piratey because he's the son of a former pirate but then kira knightley also co-stars as an aristocratic young woman of the time in the 18th century uh, elizabeth swan she goes rogue again she goes to the side of captain jack and joins all of them we also get the lovely talented jeffrey rush making an appearance in this film he's in the first film but not so much the second but he makes a return for this film which i am so i love his appearance jeffrey rush does a brilliant job in this you know you think he did the king's speech and he sounds nothing like he does in this compared to that and yeah it's just a brilliant performance as hector barbosa the rival pirate to captain jack himself 
And then we've got supporting characters, Bill Nye playing Davy Jones. Again, another weird casting you wouldn't have ever seen. But yeah, this film, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, it was a very, it's an epic film. It's a big, long film. Very epic. Everyone comes together. It's a classic pirate swashbuckling adventure. It follows on from the second one. So spoilers ahead. So I've warned you already. But at the end of the second one, Johnny Depp's Captain Jack Sparrow does die and he gets sent to Davy Jones's locker. So all the myths and legends about Davy Jones's locker, the Flying Dutchman, all that stuff, that applies in this universe. He gets sent down to the locker to live out his days in sort of like pirate hell, as it were. Jack didn't leave behind a heir to run the Black Pearl. So all of the original crew who were sent in the previous two films, they all go on a mission to find Jack and to resurrect him and you know track him down in Davy Jones's locker. It's very simple storytelling, really. Obviously, if you watch the first two, you'll understand more about different in bits about the narrative and the world that's created. But I would say that definitely watch all of these, and I would, I guarantee you, you'll enjoy the third one, especially watching it after the second one, because it does link in. And I mentioned Jeffrey Rush as Hector Barbosa. For me, him and his little monkey Jack, <laughs> the brilliant little monkey guy, they come in right at the end of the film and it's one of those back when I watched this I was like oh, wow like that was so unexpected to see him come back because before obviously this was in a time before I was watching films thinking oh what's coming next and looking it up on either seeing things on the internet or looking it up on the internet myself or doing research on it I just went to watch the film and when Barbosa came back in after I assumed he was gone for good at the end of The Curse of the Black Pearl the first one I was so excited, like, I was like, oh, oh, this is exciting, and the sword fights between Captain Jack and Barbosa when they sort of go in opposition to each other, and then they come back together by the end of it, it's a lovely love-hate relationship between the two men, I just, I think it's awesome. Johnny Depp, I can't help highlight his brilliant performance in this film, I don't care what anyone says, this is a brilliant leading role, I know there's lots of talk about recasting Johnny Depp in a sort of a reboot spin-off of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. I genuinely, I don't think I'd be interested in that. Johnny Depp is Captain Jack Sparrow. Fair enough if they continue on the story in the universe with a different character, but if they ever tried to recast him, I don't think it'd work. Honestly, my opinion, I think he's the character, he's made the character his own, you can't do it again. Like, maybe in like 50 years, maybe, once the franchise has died down and the buzz about it has, I mean, it's sort of died down now, but when it dies down completely... But right now, he's still fresh in everyone's mind. So just, I think, stick with, you know, watching the original Johnny Depp franchise of Pirates of the Caribbean. Not so much the fourth one, but the original three are really good. And the fifth one's subpar. Like I said, though, Pirates of the Caribbean, World's End. There's lots of set pieces where they fight. Uh, we have a big, massive battle again in the Maelstrom. Massive storm at the end of the film, which, you know, I'll let you guys watch that. So much happens. Uh, there's a marriage. There's fighting over the heart of Davy Jones, which if you watch the second film, you'll learn more about that. It's fast-paced, action-packed, lots of witty banter and dialogue, and overall, really genuine fun to watch from start to finish. And even though it's a really long film, I think it is paced just right. And the other thing I would highlight from this film, as well as the performances by the likes of Jeffrey Rush, Bill Nye, even though he's CGI'd as a squid, there's a sequence at the beginning of the film where we get multiple versions of Captain Jack with the Black Pearl in Davy Jones's locker 
and he's basically talking to himself. He's the only one who can see them. So when everybody arrives in Davy Jones' locker, they find Jack. They realise he's just talking to some himself. And we see bits where, from an audience's perspective, we see that he's talking to himself and there's no one there. But he's imagining that he's got people around him and they all look like him. And each and every one of those performances is Johnny Depp. And they're so unique and key to the interaction of him as a character i just i think it's a tour de force of a performance captain jack sparrow so if i haven't sold that enough to you i don't know how else i could but it's a really fun film from start to finish you will enjoy it i think it's great fun and if you like pirate action battles guns sword fights the lot and then you know there's so many more things we go to like international locations across the globe we get resistance from the so-called world order with the Indian trading company, which you know, led by our purest people who are against piracy and stuff like that. And, you know, even though pirates are meant to be the villain, technically, really, they are the heroes in this story and the everyday rich person of the aristocracy. I think World's End cements this fantasy world of the Pirates of the Caribbean. And it wraps it all up nicely. I don't know why they had to do a fourth one. It was crap. The fifth one, okay. If that was the fourth one, it would have been good. It would have been okay. I still wouldn't have appreciated it. But I think that the franchise was perfectly okay after the third one. But enough said on that. That's why I love Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. The third in the franchise. But moving on to my third pick of this decade. It's another franchise. Again, if you haven't watched the rest of them, just watch them if you're into this kind of thing or if you want to watch them that's fine i know not everyone likes these because they're seen as quite popularist and they're not exactly the most high class of cinema although i would argue that this film in the franchise is particularly a good one and that is the third installment in at number three on this list of the harry potter franchise and that is harry potter and the prisoner of azkaban released in 2004 directed by alfonso curran before he did that terrible film with Sandra Bullock just screaming in space and George Clooney not really doing a lot in Gravity. Uh, but this is, I would say, Alfonso Cuaron. His style is brought in so well. And what a director to pick to direct the next stage in a ever-growing saga of what are originally books written by J.K. Rowling and the film series which would go on to be loved by millions. This one, I think, it is my favourite Harry Potter film. I do like this one. I, To be honest, I could watch this one. Obviously, I'd need to know context for all the other bits, and I do know them, but I can easily watch this film on its own without having to watch the rest of them. Because alone, it tells a story. There is a story there. There's some backstory bits which are explained a little bit here and there, but I think that ultimately you can watch this on its own, and you can enjoy it. So for anyone who doesn't know, Harry Potter, young boy wizard, played by Daniel Radcliffe in this series, with his friends Hermione Granger, played by Emma Watson, and Ron Weasley, who's played by Rupert Grint. These three get up to all sorts of shenanigans in their wizard school, the school for witchcraft and wizardry. We get to meet all sorts of different characters along the way, different creatures. It's an amazing feat into magical fantasy-based films. Obviously, there was lot, there was a few, quite a few fantasy-based films before Harry Potter, but these are the ones that, moving into the digital age of cinema, we really experience what digital cinema can do with fantasy. This and the advent of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Lord of the Rings is not on this list, but I do appreciate that a lot of hard work and effort went into this and 
Peter Jackson did a great job on that franchise. It was a epic thing of epic proportions. It's not my favorite thing to watch. I find them very hard and very like, if you're in there, you're in there. If you're not, you're not. I will probably learn to love them another day. But at the moment, you know, I respect the filmmaking. I understand that they were a great feat for their time. But in terms of enjoyment, obviously, Harry Potter was like neck and neck with these films. And I do understand that Lord of the Rings is much more respected than Harry Potter. But for me, The Prisoner of Azkaban, Alfonso Cuaron's direction for this is very dark. It's much more distinctive compared to the first two. So the first two, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone and The Chamber of Secrets, they were very, they were both directed by Chris Columbus, who takes us on that magical journey that we want to be on. You know, we see things through a child's perspective and the tone is matched well with the director. But now the third film, we're going into angsty teenagehood. And we see that at the beginning of the film where Harry is very angry and angsty because he misses his friends. He realises he's growing up slowly and he wants to be a bit more independent. Even though he's still a child, he gets really stroppy, as most teenagers do, with his adoptive parents, the Dursleys, and his annoying brother, who doesn't seem to do anything but moan and be a spoilt brat. We see this angst come out, he runs off, and this leads on to my one of my key highlights from The Prisoner of Azkaban, and that's the night bus. The night bus is this giant triple-decker, yes, you heard me correctly, guys, triple-decker bus, in purple that picks up stranded wizards in the nighttime and takes them to their desired location and this leads harry on to going to one of the usual haunts a, a little hotel kind of place the leaky cauldron with a bar and everything to stay overnight little b and b as it were for wizards and he discovers on a newspaper that this character of sirius black played by the fantastic gary oldman has escaped from prison he is a dangerous wizard who is apparently associated with killing or being at least a factor in the death of Harry's parents Lily and James Potter. So naturally, and Harry discovers more and more about this as the film goes on, he slowly develops a bit of a a resentment for the, for this guy who we discover is actually Harry's godfather in the end of this. And he's not so much of a bad guy, but Harry has a lot of resentment to him. Again, playing on the teenage angst, if you like coming-of-age sort of stuff, you'll like the Harry Potter franchise, but obviously, plus fantasy. The style that Alfonso Cuaron brings to this, you know, you've got the angsty emotion of the teenage years, and rebellion in terms of he's not allowed to go on a trip because his step-parents, foster parents, weren't allowed to, didn't sign this permission slip for him to go on this trip to Hogsmeade, this little village outside of Hogwarts. And he rebels, uses the invisibility cloak to sneak out of school and go out and meet his friends out in the snow. Lovely shots there. But I do like the really dark, gritty bits that Quran brings to this with the Star Wars have the wipes that go across the screen. Whereas Harry Potter, we have these little iris type things that open like an iris from the middle or close in, which I think Star Wars do a little bit. Kind of reminiscent of the way they would do things in the 1920s. It gives it a very gothic feel. And that's what I would say for the tone of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. There's lots of gothic elements to it. Because you've got a big massive castle, which in the first two films, it's just fun. It's fantastical. It's amazing. It's magical. It's through the eyes of children. And obviously there's dark things in between. But I think the tone and the colour palette, the grey scale for these things that Quran brings to this, it really heightens the emotions of everything and reinforces the fact that this is a franchise that's growing up 
and it's becoming a little bit more darker as we go through, which by the time you get to the end of the franchise, you can't see a thing. (laughs) Unless it's like bright sunshine, then you can see something. But no, this is probably one of my favourites. It's got a time travel element in it, which is probably why I like it a lot, to be honest, with a little time turner, little spinner necklace thing that Hermione Granger uses to get to so many different classes. If The more you watch it, the more you realise that's how she got there. Because at first, when I watched it, I was like, what is going on? And I kind of didn't get it afterwards until I'd watched it again. It's a brilliant magical item. And I, it's used ultimately in the end of the plot to save a magical creature, which we see condemned to death at one point. We see little hints to the two versions of the same characters coexisting. And ultimately, it's the fun and adventure. Same as Pirates of the Caribbean. With Harry Potter, you're in for a magical thrill ride of anything if you don't like magical fantasy and obviously because of recent events if you're not really into this kind of thing i do understand but i still have fond memories from when i grew up of harry potter and the prisoner of azkaban and you know we get to see pete the acting talents of gary oldman i think he does a fantastic performance as the deranged serious black you know like he was is i did all my waiting years of it in Azkaban and you know you could see like the makeup on him is done so well because when he appears in the Order of the Phoenix in the fifth film he's very like resplendent and very well done up in this velvety corduroy suit but the thing is with this one it's he's insane because he's been locked up for something that he wasn't actually responsible for and that's the ultimate message of this film is you don't always judge a book by its cover they might look scary they might and you know people tell you things but it's not necessarily true until you know the person themselves but at the end of the day this is fantasy and it's all you know part of the grand scale plan which leads up to the final film the deathly hallows both parts one and two so i would say gary oldman's great uh, we've got Peter Pettigrew, a character called, played by Timothy Spall. I won't spoil how that happens because you need to watch it to find out why. Uh, he plays an important role in this. Time travel, like I said, at the end of the film. Again, I won't give too much away, but honestly, I think the tone of this is perfect. I love the bits. There's a brilliant scene where Hermione proper slaps Malfoy, so Draco Malfoy, in the face. And he's just, you know, he's such an entitled little bugger. And you think, he deserves a slap. And then... Hermione goes and slaps him. I, I think it's just the perfect tone for this teenage angst and she's finally fed up of all his little horrible mean things that he said to her over the past two films. So she's finally lost it and she slaps him in the face. Yeah, I don't condone violence usually unless it's magical, but I think in this case Draco Malfoy was asking for it. And that's where I'll leave you on The Prisoner of Azkaban. Moving on to number two though. Number two in my list is a comedy. It's got some action. It's directed by Edgar Wright. It was released in 2007. It stars Simon Pegg and Nick Frost as the classic comedy duo that they are in so many films. Simon Pegg plays a character called Nicholas Angel, a PC-turned-sergeant, moved to the lovely area of Samford, in which it's so idyllic and so small town villagey that you can't stand it. (laughs) He can't stand it anyway. And then Nick Frost as a local policeman, Danny Butterman, who's a PC in Samford. And this film that I'm talking about is Hot Fuzz. I could not do an episode about the 2000s without mentioning at least one of the Cornetto trilogy films because Hot Fuzz, to me, I've mentioned this before on another episode, so I won't go into too much detail about it, but Hot Fuzz, essentially, Simon Pegg's Nicholas Angel, he's so good at his job and annoyingly good. He gets moved from the big city of London to this tiny, small area in the countryside where 
he gets promoted, but at the end of the day, he's been promoted to sergeant in a country land that's nothing like the kind of work that he's used to in the city. He's used to locking up lots of criminals and doing really in-depth bits and pieces and stuff like that. You know, intense police work that's proper, and he's very straight-laced and by the book. And I think, you know, the film follows how Nick Frost's character of Danny, he tries to loosen Nicholas up a little bit. You haven't seen Bad Boys 2, all the stuff like that. The film is ultimately so quotable. Edgar Wright, Edgar Wright was good at Baby Driver and Shaun of the Dead, Shaun of the Dead obviously before, and then The World's End came after this one. Those several films that you could mention are so acclaimed for Edgar Wright's signature violent, fast-paced style. But this one is probably the one that hits the punches. You know, you've got gags about a missing swan by a guy called P.I. Staker. I will leave you to fill in the gap for that one. And I will not spoil it too much, but I have to say it was all for the greater good. That is what I shall say. The greater good that's at the heart of all of the wrong goings on in Sanford. I will let you find out who is who. But the cast is just stellar. Like I said, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, Timothy Dalton as a character called Simon Skinner, who's the manager of a supermarket <laughs> i believe it's a summerfield actually i don't know for anyone in the uk i don't think summerfield exists anymore but i think that <laughs> it's interesting and so british to have a summerfield in the story and i love the scene where he's just smiling with the manager of the year award and there's a picture of him and he looks exactly the same in the background i just think he's absolutely hilarious and the way he just appears out of nowhere when simon pegs on his run in the morning he's a bit creepy and kind of muscles in other key points as well, we've got the likes of Jim Broadbent as well as the inspector, the detective inspector of the Sanford Police Force. Bill Bailey makes an appearance. Also, fun little fact for you, anyone who doesn't know, there's a Santa gunman, so a guy that's dressed as Santa with a massive shotgun of sorts. He is actually, in fact, Peter Jackson. So I mentioned Peter Jackson being such a success with the Lord of the Rings franchise. Peter Jackson also made an uncredited cameo appearance, which you didn't even know about probably in Hot Fuzz, unless you're a big Hot Fuzz fan. And then the other thing, there's so many moments in this film that I love, including Leslie Tiller was murdered. Uh, <laughs> the, the performances are so, they're comedic, but they're taken so seriously, fast-paced. You get to see them eating an original ice blue cold Cornetto, and that links to the Cornetto trilogy, because this is blue for the police. And overall, the battle, I think the ending battle between... Nicholas Angel and the people of the police force, including Olivia Coleman, out of many people, and Rafe Spall, all of them just banding together and they have that last fight with the baddies of the town, which will learn about who's who and who's what if you watch the film. I love particularly the moment where it's epic music and you just see Simon Pegg bobbing along with two twin guns on his back, shades up, bullet vest ready, and he's striding along on a horse and, and all you hear is this woman going oh check out his horse <laughs> i just i think it's a fun-filled piece of action and comedy mixed into one with such a british flair so edgar wright well done on you such a good film and i think it's my favorite of the cornetto trilogy and i think it's the best one because there's so many jokes so many quick paced moments so many quotes for instance the whole how old are you when's your birthday what year every year so many other quotes that you could mention. I'm not going to go into them now, but brilliant film overall. Fantastic. So that's why Hot Fuzz is my number two spot. Just as it's got epic moments like franchise films, such as Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, 
or Pirates of the Caribbean, but it's on a smaller scale and it's much more British. So I think, you know, hands down, Hot Fuzz, number two. But finally, in at number one, a film that I think is going to stick out the most. I've mentioned my love of musicals before. This is a musical released in 2002. So it's not Dreamgirls from 2005, although that's an honourable mention for that one. Uh, It's not a high school musical film. It's none of those ones. It is the 2002 Rob Marshall film set in the 1920s, specifically 1924, in a American city, which if I say the name now, I'll give away the film, but it's a brilliant star-studded cast featuring Catherine Zeta-Jones as Velma Kelly, Renee Zellweger as Roxy Hart, Richard Gere as Billy Flynn, a defence lawyer, Queen Latifah as Matron Mama Morton, and John C. Riley as Amos Hart. Those are our sort of main key players in this film, and it is Chicago. Based on the 1975 musical of the same name, Chicago is just a fun-filled piece of music-filled drama. It's really all about women who kill their husbands and they're on death row, essentially, or kill men and they're on death row, and they're in there waiting if they're going to get off or not. And like I said, Richard Gere plays Billy Flynn, the silver-tongued prince of the courtroom who defends both Velma Kelly, so Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Roxy Hart, Renee Zellweger's characters, at some stage or another. And it's all about how they try and get out of prison and avoid the death sentence. There's a, And at the same time, it's a musical. It's a musical about killer women trying to escape the death penalty. And it's done with such style. I think the film, I know some people would argue that I'm a bit jaded by the film. Stage productions, they're in one place. You don't have all the camera angles. You don't have any, like, CGI or any, like, big budget locations or anything like that you get from any movie. But this, it's so three-dimensional. Even the bit where it is a little bit CGI'd, which could have been better but of the city towards the beginning of the film but i think that this ultimately is a great portrayal of 1920s chicago with roxy hart she kills her lover who's a furniture salesman fred casely who basically lied to her about being a guy with connections and knowing someone who could get her a gig in a performing space on the stage at a local club we see her at the beginning watching velma kelly forming uh all that jazz which is one of my personal song highlights from the film overall just a brilliant really upbeat jazzy piece which has some lovely slow moments and then it picks up pace again just a lovely mixed bag of music and we see her fantasizing we get a lovely bit where she belts out the last note on the word jazz and she turns into imagining what she would be like if she was in Velma Kelly's position but ultimately we see that she kills her lover who she's cheated on her husband with, who's a bit of a doe, and that's Amos Hart, who's played by John C. Riley. He has a lovely emotional song. You wouldn't think of John C. Riley as a guy to sing, but he has a lovely emotional moment with Mr. Cellophane later on in the film, where, you know, you just walk by him, you see right through him, and you don't really pay attention to him. He's the background guy, so much so that Billy Flynn actually gets his name wrong, like, nine times out of ten. But it's all about these two divas, really, Roxy and Velma. It's all about publicity and the strive for stardom and fame and power even though usually in some a lot of older films you would see women fighting over a man these two women are fighting over billy flynn but not for his affections but because he's a lawyer they want to get off of their cases and get out of prison and get back to being in show business and i can't tell you much more about that because otherwise it will sort of it kind of explains it for itself i'll just tell you about some of my favorite songs really the overture and all that jazz 
combination at the beginning of the film we only see the way it's shot is so brilliantly done we follow Velma Kelly in heels walking the streets getting into her dressing room and we don't see her until we see her silhouette and then the light comes on and she begins to sing all that jazz it's all such a well choreographed fun piece of film as you follow her around in this continuous shot and then you cut between a few other angles and whip pan around to the band playing in the background as well and also the way the film opens with the i think it's a saxophone at the beginning or a trumpet and you see the eyes i want to say they're roxy hart's eyes and the camera zooms in just to see her eyes and it's kind of like we're going into Roxy Hart's dream. I've theorised this before, that Chicago is a big fantasy. It's all one big dream. And this is her imagining what life could be like. And also, I have the idea that basically, she is on death row. She does get killed and get hung for her crime. But this is her dream of what could have been in the last final moments of her life before she, her sentencing. And I just think, you know, that's one way of looking at it. But the other thing as well is... You go through her eyes and you see it through her perspective. And through that we see, and that's because everything's staged like a musical. She sees things as a musical performance and experience because she is a performer. And that's how she visualizes things. Like she's asleep in bed and suddenly all of the cellmate, all the women in the prison with her, they are doing this song, which is, uh, I doubt they'd even be singing, but because she's into theater, she's visualizing it. And that is a brilliant song, Cell Block Tango, where we, get to it's seven minutes long eight minutes long where we meet all these different characters and how they ended up in prison and how the men had it coming because they deserve to be killed and they they were right to do what they did that kind of thing and it's shot so well with the silhouettes of the women behind these bars on this big massive stage uh other songs i like razzle dazzle is really good but billy flynn running a circus ring roxy Hart on display in this big circus ring that's lifted up and we see her presented on the stage in with the judge in the podium ready to be judged for the court and that's a good one as well the, in that same courtroom sequence we have a tap dance which is performed by Richard Gere it's actually danced by Richard Gere he did learn how to tap dance and I think it's a brilliant it's shot so well with nice shadowy dark and like a little bit of lighting shines off him but you see him mostly in silhouette and you see shadows across his face and then when he finishes it goes ba and then he finishes and the light goes out and that's as in parallel to him delivering his reasoning for why Roxy is innocent and pleading his case really and it's a really uh, intense moment where you're building up cutting between the two scenes going you know a tap dance it's a personal performance but a personal thing putting himself on the line for his client for Roxy and then obviously we both reach for the gun brings that theatrical side to things as well with the puppets and Roxy being a puppet under billy's control and the little big billy flynn at the top with the little puppet strings i think is just a brilliant piece of theatrical filmmaking at its best and then you get the final performance of nowadays hot honey rag with velma and roxy joining together in harmony by the end of the film in some kind of way and you get brilliant performances not just from them but queen latifah's own song early in the film as well is just star stunning she went on to do obviously hairspray a couple of years later in 2007 but i think she really does earn her crown in this film as well she does a brilliant job but overall i'd say it's great fun musical theatricality from beginning to end and i'd say just keep watching it really some great shots with the lighting and the way it's staged as well and yeah chicago overall is my number one pick for the 2000s so that's it for this episode guys 
I'm just going to give you a quick recap of what we've been through today. So in at number five, we have Donnie Darko, directed by Richard Kelly, released in 2001. Then we have Pirates of the Caribbean, At World's End, the third film, 2007, directed by Gore Verbinski at number four. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, released in 2004, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, takes my number three spot. Hot Fuzz in at number two, released in 2007, directed by Edgar Wright. And finally, in at number one, the Rob Marshall 2002 film, Chicago. I hope you've enjoyed some of my picks today, guys. In the next one, it will be the final episode of the series of decades, concluding with a top 10 list, as well as our top five from the 2010s. And that's a wrap on Take 97, the 2000s edition of the podcast. And I shall see you on the next episode for some action from the 2010s. Thank you very much, guys. See you later.